This is Trackside with Kurt Cavan and Kevin Lee. Pretty good formation and a strong one for Scott McLaughlin into turn number nine. It's a great jump for McLaughlin. Roman Grosjean immediately jumps to the inside to grab second. Everybody nice and clean through turn at number nine. They'll sort it out, but it is Scott McLaughlin, your race leader, Michael, on the opening lap into turn ten. Disappointing day has just gotten even worse. In that contact with Dalton Kellett, the rear wheel got into the underwing, and it just created a mess of problems. They have been chattering on the radio nonstop to figure out how it feels. Scott Dixon said it is very loose, but that may be just because it's a new set of tires. But Scott Dixon, obviously, way out to the back and not happy with how this day is going. How about the job that Scott Dixon has done today? I think Joel Sebastianelli has spent a ton of time with Scott Dixon on pit road. When all the said and done, here we are late in the race, he gets himself up to second. I thought he'd at least get back to 15th. Little did I remember, Scott Dixon is still Scott Dixon. 52 career wins for Scott Dixon, zero for Christian Lundgaard. And Lundgaard's going to lose that second spot to Scott McLaughlin, and right behind them, Roman Grosjean gets pounded into the turn nine wall. That car heavily damaged on the right side of the racetrack. Front two start to get some separation into turn number nine. McLaughlin is closing, but is he close enough? The answer is no through turn number nine. Scott Dixon holds him off. He's looking for win number 53. Michael, the advantage. One and a half car lengths over Scott McLaughlin into turn 10. We are most certainly witnessing the greatest driver of this generation. Scott Dixon to the final time into turn number 11. McLaughlin will look to the inside. Think better of it. But McLaughlin gets a great run down the front straightaway. What an unbelievable set of circumstances. A drag race to the start-finish slide, but Scott Dixon will not be denied. He goes into history as he steps away from Mario Andretti. He takes the checkered flag and wins the big machine Music City Grand Prix. I always say on some of these street courses, if you damage the car early, it's probably a good sign. And I don't know why, but it always turns out that way. But it put us in the right seat for strategy. The, the tough part was just that at the end, we didn't, didn't have pace. We didn't have flat-out pace. Another lap or two, I think we were doing a bit of a sitting duck. So uh, I'm just glad that one's over, man. That was cool. Oh, there is so much to talk about tonight. The cauldron of hate is overflowing. We've got multiple battles going on, driver to driver, uh, driver to fan, and team to driver still continuing, and much more tonight on the program. And now the second winningest driver all alone in IndyCar history, potentially on the brink of joining the crowd for the most championships as well. Welcome to Trackside, 93.5, 107.5, The Fan in Indianapolis. Kevin Lee, Kurt Cavan, Josh Molinix is in our MS Communications Worldwide Headquarters. Highlights courtesy of IndyCar Radio from the big machine Music City Grand Prix, where for the second year in a row, Oriole Servia led the most laps in the pace car. But Scott Dixon led the one or ones that mattered the most and somehow won the race on the old six-stop strategy. I didn't see that in the NTT data on the screen before the race is an option, nor did we see the five-stopper from last season. So uh, I think we'll just get to the big story first. And we'll, we'll, we've, I'm not sure there's much new we can say about Dixon. We will again, and we'll get back to that in a moment. But let's talk about the event, and let's talk about everybody's asking about is the track itself, is this too much? Or is it just the right amount of chaos to bring some people in and say, hey, I want to see some more of that? 
Well, I think there's there's some uh, aggression that needs to be tempered just a little bit. I think I don't think it's the track. I think you know there are some places where the track makes it inviting, and we're in such a competitive era of this sport that you know I think you know drivers are are going a little bit too hot and heavy through those corners. I mean, a couple of those accidents, the driver's not anywhere near alongside. I look back at, at last year's race, you know, on Friday before before uh, practice and qualifying got or practice got rolling, and I was looking at Will Power's couple of incidents that he had last year. He wasn't even close, you know. So, I mean, you got to be – you got to be uh, – Joseph Newgarden, for example, when he had contact with Ramon Grosjean in this race – you know, he was properly alongside and, and one person's got to give or back out and, and neither one did. But that's that's how you make a pass. Now you have contact. That's I mean, there's more to it than that. But, you know, we're having some guys, you know, the right front of the trailing driver running and hitting the back end of of the leading driver. So you're going to have some of that aggression that that uh, in the wrong spot, so to speak, if you have that in turn four or turn nine. Uh but you know the tracks. The tracks not ideal from a from a pure racing standpoint. But it's a street circuit. I mean, there's a lot of street circuits that that don't present you know this great side by side racing. But it brings the sport to the masses. And look, I think the the bridge, you know, long runs on a bridge are great. There's a lot of good aspects to this track. Now, there's a couple spots that that yeah even even the uh, constructor of the course would maybe like to do differently but you're you're confined by you know the natural habitat of the city and the streets and you do the best you can and again you know turns 4 5 6 7 i think at 8 they're they're not ideal but but uh, you know we've had problems in other spots too and you know again aggression of the drivers uh, reduced a little bit could have could have solved some of these. It's a combination of a lot of things. The track is a factor. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, I think where you're at in the championship is a bit of a factor that people are going to get more aggressive trying to, well, one, either trying to climb back in the championship or two, understanding they're not in the championship. And the only thing that matters is a win or a podium or a top 10 best result of the season kind of thing. And they'll, They'll take some more chances. Uh, I suspect that five races in four weekends, that everybody's temper is a little bit shorter, which would probably go back to some of the Twitter uh, comments that you saw from drivers after the race. It was hot. It was really hot all weekend. Sunday wasn't terrible. Well, after the rain came, it was still muggy. But, but I think that tempers start to get a little bit shorter after that is the case. But to suggest that this race should be abandoned because there are too many crashes, ah, come on now. Uh, this, this is an event that you need to have. Can it be tweaked? Certainly it can. And you look into that. You know, Maybe can you, can you widen out the exit of turn nine? Because that was one of the issues that it's wide, it's inviting, it's a long straightaway. But then like when you see what happened to Newgarden and Grosjean, if someone does make a late dive on you, it's very difficult to get out of it. You're kind of just going in the wall. I would say, however, and this probably is why Marcus Erickson responded to Grosjean's uh, tweet about being angry. Same thing happened to Marcus Erickson. 
I, I can't swear it was that turn. I don't recall what which turn it was, but it was one of those tight corners. Grosjean forced Erickson off. Grosjean, uh, Erickson basically hit the brakes. So he lost some spots, but he continued on until he got hit later and broke his gearbox. But there is a way out of it, but it's not, not ideal. So maybe if they can out widen out some of the exits, maybe that's a place. I don't know if that area allows that or not. Obviously, what they did in turn 11 helped. We didn't see the problems in turn 11 by widening that area just a bit. I don't know if there's anything you can do in the 456 area uh, that could be looked into. But sometimes it does come into driver standards. You know what the situation is going to be, so you'd best behave yourselves uh, a little bit. I know the hardcores think that this was a bleep show, but generally speaking, had... Uh, circumstances not interfered, and this was a, a regular race on NBC, I suspect you'd have found that more people would have been watching than a traditional race. People like chaos. People like train wrecks. And, you know, unfortunately, we didn't get a chance to kind of measure it with the numbers because you get – and that's just the way it is. Uh, and, and we can get into this later, too, about the start time and you know I, I honestly do not know how that's dictated if the promoter wants to go late if the network said that's the only option that we have is to go late but when you're going late and things get delayed unless you're the nfl and also nascar but but you you need to be drawing probably more than two or three million viewers to stay on network television past six o'clock eastern it's not a slight on indycar that's just the way the business works Luckily, there is another alternative. It's not a great alternative because it's not a sports channel. This is where Peacock sure came in handy. This would be one of those where none of our DVRs would have caught this uh, in the previous world. But, you know, I'm able to watch it today because it was all all on Peacock. But they'll figure out the track. People come to this race. It's going to continue as long as it is commercially viable. Yeah, I think you can you can open up. I don't know about about uh, a couple of I don't know all the corners because I haven't looked at them closely to know uh, where there's some extra room. And it may be such that like turn 11, the the place to widen it is on on the left side, driver's left as opposed mm -hmm. to driver's right. So so you have two options and either one might help the, help the situation but when you go into a tight corner and you can't go too wide sometimes and so if you can you you both have to respect each other and i think i think you raised several good points one grosjean is has become a target within the within the sport i mean other drivers aren't willing to cut him slack uh as much as they would have maybe last year uh i think that's that seems apparent uh the second thing is you know, you're you're five races now into four week, you know, window, and that's people are tired and it's it's uh, competitive, and you're getting toward the end of the season, and guys who haven't won races are trying to win them, and guys that uh, some are in some cases driving for their jobs, and you know others are going for a championship, so, and then you add in the heat. You know, the heat all weekend was such that even if it was nicer on on late afternoon Sunday following the rain. You're right, it was still muggy, but people were tired at that point. They had to be. It was hot, and you're sitting in that race car, and your nerves are are probably at their end. And, you know, I'm not surprised. You know, I, it could have been cleaned up just a little, and we I don't think we'd be having this conversation if we have, you know, a couple fewer 
uh, incidents, but you know, it's two years in a row and these drivers are still trying to figure out how to race this venue. By the way, they basically made it to lap 22 with just one caution. They made it through the start of the race. They made it through the first restart. And then it was after that, that they just couldn't get through restarts. Um, but boy, it does leave you with something to talk about. And I was just listening to Scott Dixon uh, when he was on with Jake and Kevin this morning. And his response was, I think we need to look into making this the finale. And that's an oh. interesting conversation um, because one, it's awfully hot. And, you know, I, I saw a question and I'll get to some Twitter questions in a moment. People saying the crowd looked like it was a little bit down this year. I, I know that there were fewer grandstand tickets sold. I think it was fully sold out. If not, it was really close last year. And I know at least leading into the weekend, there were more grandstand tickets available. The suites were sold out. Um, and one of the reasons might be, well, one, first year event, they one of the grandstands wasn't built when people showed up last year on Friday. So that hampers it a little bit. But mostly, too, it's I don't want to sit in those grandstands all weekend. It was hot up there. Uh, so people decided to either get general admission or do walk up or whatever the case may be. This is one of those, if you could figure it out, could you do a temporary light situation and run it at night Now you're not going to be on NBC. We've already discussed that, but I'm not sure that if the alternative is to go head to head, this is something that needs to be talked about within the IndyCar offices and with NBC and a deep think needs to happen because even if you didn't get bounced to see NBC, the rating was not going to be as good as it could be because again, you were going head to head with NASCAR and I, Maybe that was not an option to start earlier. Maybe the promoter wants to go later, or maybe the contract with golf. And this is not a minor event. It drew 1.1 million viewers on Sunday. I think it was at the Women's British Open. So it's a significant event. And head-to-head, if if IndyCar is in that time slot head-to-head with NASCAR, I don't know that we're getting 1.1. Perfect example was last week. Saturday got 1.1 million. Sunday, head-to-head with NASCAR, or maybe maybe it was two weeks ago, got 700,000 or something like that. You've got a better chance of drawing in from motorsport fans. So a deep think needs to be made. You know, I know we want as many network races as possible. Maybe you want to consider giving up some of those. And if there's golf or something that needs to be on NBC for the day, let's just figure it out and work around NASCAR. And if possible... Let's go after NASCAR. Can we talk NASCAR and NBC into moving that race up an hour or so earlier? And we'll go on the back end of that. Now, you're taking a risk because if NASCAR has a rain delay, they're keeping NASCAR on and you're on CNBC and Peacock. But if all goes well, you might draw a million and a half on cable. What, what, did, what did they draw last year? Like 1.2 million, 3 million? Uh, after the cup race on NBCSN. So you could get a similar rating. You could get a bigger number on cable than you would get on network, probably by a half a million if you're going head-to-head with cups. So that's a different conversation. So literally and figuratively, uh, this was the perfect storm. Both the NASCAR race and the IndyCar race had delays, storm-related delays. So, you know, I just was noticing when NASCAR was restarting, IndyCar was pushing the cars out to the grid. And I was like, can you just get a little luck once in a while? You know, you could have been racing while NASCAR was on rain delay at Michigan. 
and instead mm-hmm. they both uh, they both restart within fifteen minutes of each other, and and ended at the same time. And yeah, normally you know starting the same time. You're watching the IndyCar race, and you're watching the final stage of the Cup race. But they didn't have as many cautions, and IndyCar had nine, and basically ran half of the race behind the pace car. So that is the perfect story. And here's another another thing to think of: ten years ago, you're thinking, "Eh, it's a road and street course. We race in the rain." Unfortunately, because of what happened at Pocono with uh, fans being struck by lightning, whenever that was, ten years ago. The rules have changed, and we really don't run in the rain much anymore. The only way we run in the rain is if there's no lightning. And, you know, we're sitting around and looking out at the sky, and you'll hear, clock just reset, and none of us even see lightning. So you're not even – now, there there were some close strikes. Uh, When it first started raining, so this would have been maybe a half hour before airtime, it felt like a couple of bolts were in the compound like in the parking lot, very, very close. So this wasn't one of those just overreacting things like that. This was a real safety issue that people did need to take cover for. And I'm not saying what they do in general is wrong. I'm just saying it's tougher to run in the rain now because you don't even see rain in the area. You don't even see lightning in the sky, but it's within eight miles and they've detected it. And that's the way the rules are, probably mostly for insurance and just about being smart. So you're running more of a risk when you start a little bit later in the day. And it's something to think about as we move forward. Um, but in some cases, chaos is fine. I know it's not right. And if your favorite driver was impacted, that's not, that's not fantastic. But the fact that we saw a guy running pretty close to last that had what? The air jack apparently failed. Just learned that hearing Scott. Uh, in this interview a few minutes ago, replayed. Uh, he had damage in the car. They couldn't get the wheel off. Starting mid-pack anyway, he wins the race. You know, Rossi and Herta are a lap down. They finish in the top five. New Garden's outside the top 15 with what seems to be like the last restart and so on and so forth. Sometimes that's kind of fun. Yeah, uh, I would say, though, to Scott Dixon's point about it being the season finale, you got a couple things in play. One, I'd kind of hate to say that, you know, we talk about the aggression that was there in a race that was getting close to the end of the season. Imagine the aggression that goes up if it's the last race of the season. Uh, yeah. That's possible. And the other is this goes around a football stadium. And last I checked, they play football uh, in the fall, and it starts about the time that that last race of the season would be held, unless you got it done by Labor Day, which most of us don't really care for. So, ultimately, I I don't think this has got much of uh, a chance to be the finale if we're talking about, you know, anything beyond the first weekend in September. So, I mean, it could happen, but well, the, boy, the Titans like aren't at home every weekend. The Titans are not at home every weekend, and they could request a weekend off, but. It would be difficult for date equity. You could not do it the same weekend every year because, you know, you're basically, I guess if you slotted it to be NFL week two, they might be okay with requesting week two off every year. They're not definitely going to request week one on the road every single year. They're going to want the season to open at home. But also, I believe that sometimes the NFL does a hard no on that. You can request things. But it's difficult. That was one of the issues with the Baltimore race, I believe, is that they couldn't guarantee the date that was preferred 
with the Ravens in that area. And that was probably low down the list, but it was one of the reasons that, that brought that race to an end. And to your earlier point, yeah, I'm not sure that I want something that random, you know, with someone hitting your gearbox in one of those, um, just simply stacking up efforts, ending someone's championship hopes. That would not be fantastic. From a logistic standpoint, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't there be impacted uh, usage of the facility? Meaning if you played oh, a, point. Titans, yeah, yeah. a Titans football game yep. on Sunday, I mean, you've yep. got too much infrastructure in place. Yeah, you're right. You probably need a, I don't know what the time is, but it has to be at least two weekends off. And the promoter might not want to do it on that weekend too because college football is big in Tennessee and, and the areas you're drawing from. So yeah, you might be able to get them to come on Sunday, but an awful lot of people in the Nashville area, part of their routine is they're going to UT game. They're going to Tennessee games on Saturdays and maybe they even stay all night on Saturday night. So yeah, as much as we want to get out of the heat, I don't think that's super likely to happen now. I want to ask Tony Cotman or somebody what it would take to do lights because that could solve. Now, then it needs to, does it need to be a Saturday night race? Would you be open to doing that? I would choose that over running at the exact same time as the cup race on Sunday. But as the promoter, how does that work? Can you get people to, you need a three day event for street races to make it work financially. So that's difficult. Can you do a Sunday night race? Can you light up the bridge? Not very easily. Yeah, I, I don't know I mean, how you, you light you, up the bridge. Maybe you can. You do have some support over it. Maybe it's actually easier to light up the bridge because you're just attaching lights over it. Uh, anything can be done, just costly to do it. And then also keep in mind, you do that, takes you longer to build it and tear it down, and you want that bridge open on Monday morning. Sunday, yeah. Sunday night race is tough. Promoters are not going to be super keen on that because this race, I'm sure, because I saw messages on Twitter, there was construction on 65. People were headed back to Indiana after the race, and they weren't happy. Most people are going back home after the race on Sunday night. So you probably what it is. And for those that are local, as hot as we thought it was, you know, they go outside. They're used to being hot. And the crowds were still pretty good. I know it wasn't as awesome as it was last year, but the crowds were still pretty good. It looked to me like the event should have still been successful. And they had big music acts again. Uh, it's the place to be in the city. You know, one of the good things too is, and, and I'm sure this happened in some cases, that people had tickets, see that's rain delay. They're thinking of still going to the race, because they're literally a 10-minute walk away, and they just decide to stay in Tootsie's the rest of the afternoon and watch the race on TV and don't make it over. But they bought a ticket, so that's not the worst-case scenario. At least you're still selling those seats. Uh, but this is an event that I do think has a good shelf life. I don't know what's going to happen when they build the new Titan Stadium, and I don't even remember when that's coming. But I believe that's been approved, that they're going to build a new stadium for them in a few years. And generally what happens then is you build it right next to the old stadium in the parking lot until you get the new stadium finished, then you tear down the old one. So there might be an impact for a year or so. So I don't know. I haven't seen a plan on that. Yeah, it's uh, 
it's a lot. Um, but I thought it was a good event. I thought it was a good event. I thought it was an interesting race. You just the only ones, you know, the driver aggressions on the on the passes into turn four and turn nine were a lot maybe over overly aggressive but what's unfortunate is when you have a stack up and one you know you got a lot of cars going in the corner and then you're running into the back of each other and you're causing gearbox problems for two or three drivers and you know we lost Pato award that way we lost graham rahal effectively that way we lost will power to a large degree that way so you know having that type of problem to me is more of a problem than than guys getting knocked into the wall. You know, Will Power was saying this to me uh, after the race. Is there anything that can be done to protect the gearboxes a little bit? And I don't know, and I get the impression he didn't really know either, but in places like this, I, I think that impacted at least four different people. Connor Daly was one. Pato was one. Uh, power and at least one more because they're getting hit from behind and the way things get stacked up, it's just going to happen there. And if it didn't end the race, it impacted the race. Didn't, would we count Dixon? Not really a gearbox problem, but he did get, get ran into, which was similar, but uh, anyway, his gearbox was okay. Yeah. You know, just, it is fun to see a race where a driver can come back from something. Although I don't know, I don't have any idea how, how Alexander Rossi and Colton Herta came back from as far back as they were to be as competitive as they were in the late stages. I actually, at a couple different points, said, I think Colton Herta is going to win this race. Uh, you know, so I, we do like events. You know, normally you fall a lap down on a, on a road course or street circuit. You're in pretty bad pretty bad straights but this this event has allowed guys to to bounce back from big trouble in the two races we've had and hey it's fun stuff and it it looks fun on tv and it looks fun in person and it is fun this this event's going to continue the stadium thing may be the one thing that holds it back but it won't be the racetrack itself uh and and those guys got their lap back because there are nine cautions so i looked at one point early after one of the cautions they may have even stopped late during the caution because they had not packed up i looked and they were like 50 seconds off the lead big gap in front of them and then another caution came up that allowed them to pack up and all of a sudden they're at the tail end of the lead lap and you know by the end of it yes they passed people to get up there but only 11 cars finished on the lead lap and the 11th was wounded and in danger of of going much further, and that, that's willpower. So that's how you finish in the top five when uh, you somehow get your lap back when only 11 do finish on the lead lap. For the love of Indy has good Scott Dixon stats. Fifth time, Dixon has won from a starting position outside the top 10. Here's the list of drivers with at least five IndyCar victories when starting outside the top 10. Got an idea on that list? Well, there isn't anybody. <laughs> Scott Dixon. That's it. That's the list. Yeah, and that's how, how the tweet reads. And then he says, I looked this up a few years ago. Dixon has five. Bourdais, Al Jr., and Weldon have four. And then there are 11 drivers with three. Dixon is also the only driver to win multiple times when starting outside the top 20. Nazareth in 01 for his first it, win. His first win was that way, yes. I think he started 24th. So I'm going to need to find that on YouTube and watch that one. I don't re I, I don't imagine I was watching that race live. 
I don't recall it. Uh, and then Mid-Ohio, I do recall that one in 2014. And that's one of those where, yes, he was good, but the caution came at the right time and he cycled up to the front. And our official stat master, Arnie Schrieben, tweeted, before today when Dixon became P2 in the all-time uh, IndyCar win list, the last time a driver took sole possession of second, July 1st, 1984, when Mario won his 37th at the Meadowlands to break a then tie with Al Unzer Sr., who was still active and won maybe three more races, I think it was, before he was done. So those are good stats of the day. Yeah, it was great. It was great, uh, and it's it's really difficult to believe it's been 53 race wins for Scott Dixon. I mean, the fact that, you know, I have personally seen most of those, um, amazing. You know, that's amazing information. And one more from Chad 200, Chad Smith, Dixon this year. And I, I mentioned this in our meeting before that we might want to have a graphic on this of what he's done to stay in the championship mix. And I'm pretty sure it'll be a graphic in a couple of weeks, 16th to sixth at long beach, 13th to fifth at Barber 21st to 10th at the IMS road course, 13th to fifth, Iowa one 18th to fourth, two 20th to eighth at IMS road course two and 14th to first at Nashville. And there are probably others where he didn't start that far back, but got cycled back and eventually came back. Remember Portland, the last time he won a championship when he was somehow escaped from the dirt, started up front, but fell to the back, but stayed on the lead lap and so forth and, and uh, salvaged a really good day there. So good stuff. Um, we'll get into some more uh, of this in a moment. Yeah, just to follow up on that, he's. I looked it up today. He's he's only had two races where he didn't improve his position, and one of those was the Indy 500 where he – likely would have finished where he started and the other one he only lost one position during the course of the race so he has been consistent and on the move in every race and Part he's of aware of qualifying what, yeah and he's aware of what the indy 500 did he quoted the number in that interview we we just heard before we started that i'm sure you can find online at 1075thefan.com or on a podcast somewhere I forget what it was, but he said 76 or 72 or whatever. I lost 76 points to Marcus Erickson. So, you know, if he winning, you can't assume, but he was pretty close to assuming, but something doesn't go wrong. He's finishing in the top five in that race, and he's up by 30 or 40 points at least in the championship right now. We'll get into more from what happened in Nashville. Oh, we've got more statements with drivers with uncertain futures. We'll get to that and try to figure out what that means and much more, including your tweets coming up at Kevin Lee 23 at Kirk Cavan trackside 93.5107.5 the fan. Hi, this is Scott Dixon and you're listening to trackside on 93.5 and 107.5 the fan. All right. There's a lot more to talk about from this race. The good, the bad, the sometimes ugly, but this isn't our official news of the day from Circle City Speedway in the Speedrome. But Jenna Fryer had a little tweet. Uh, tweet storm is the wrong word. It's a, what's, what is it when you package five of them together? Um, a, a thread, I guess. Yes, that's the word, a thread, which I don't know how to do. And she does. And it's a statement from, uh, as she put, she said, Statements sent to me on behalf of Felix Rosenquist. Do you have it in front of you? I'm I getting it. I should have warned it. you on that. 
Yeah, you should have. Uh, I'll have it here uh, in a second. Well, well, maybe we'll split it up because it's so long. So I'll get started. A recent media report suggested that I do not have a contract in place with Errol McLaren SP past 2022, which is not true. I do. Whatever my future holds. Oh, no, that's uh, in, in this order. I have a great relationship with Zach Brown and McLaren, and they have always been very transparent and fair to me. I understand Zach has some tough business decisions to make and holds an option on my services for next season. We agreed on a plan for me within the McLaren family and mutually announced it in a June statement. I stand by what we announced in June at the time. However, since then, I feel I have found my form in IndyCar and have made my desire clear to Zach in recent weeks to remain in IndyCar as I feel I have unfinished business and my desire is to compete for the IndyCar championship. That doesn't mean I'm not excited about Formula E, as it's a great championship that I have competed in successfully. I recognize there is a lot of speculation at the moment about many drivers and where they will be next season. All I want to do is focus on my IndyCar racing, the balance of this year. Whatever my future holds, I will decide with Zach, who has been nothing but extremely fair and understanding with me. I will not be commenting further on my future plans until I know what they are and prefer to focus on the final four races of the IndyCar season. End. Well, that clears it up, doesn't it? Go ahead and tell me what's happening now, yeah. Kurt. Got no idea. I think this is one of the silliest things that's that's ever transpired. Uh, I appreciate that Felix is is committed to Zach and and what Zach's done for his you know career, and they give him the second year and and talking about options for next year, and you know, and of the understanding that things aren't settled yet, and. It kind of blew up as a bad as a bad uh, PR talking point for the team and for Felix and for Zach and for all parties involved. And um, what a mess! It's it's a mess, and I can't I can't believe we're down this path this far. Didn't it say somewhere in this uh, release or this tweet quote thread? Focus on the final four races. Yeah. Has there been an uh, extra seems- race added? No, no, there's oh. only three. Or or this was written for him on Friday, and they forgot to send it out until Tuesday? More likely, yeah, um, more likely. And and I, I say this because I'm a big fan of Felix, and I really, really like him, and I felt for him because he's always told me what's up, you know, on the record, off the record. And I said there was a report this week. Can you What can you say? And he just smiled and said, I really can't say anything. I, I just, I'm going to focus on what's going on. I can't say anything. I said, okay. Um, so if that first statement, I obviously hadn't really thought through it at this point. If the first part of this, because I was giving him a chance to, to tell the national TV audience, this report is not true. So they obviously weren't willing to refute that. So here were my theories going in to the weekend after the story came out uh, last week from racer.com. So they announced that McLaren is picking up the option on his contract, whatever, two months ago. Has it not been executed by McLaren? And it's gotten to the point where the Rosenquist camp is getting concerned that, hey, they keep signing drivers. Technically, they could throw me out of my ear and I have no no job for next year and it's going to be too late. So I will say this. Uh, that was one of the things that Felix had told me before that original release. 
is I have an option or they have an option on me. It is a team option and it's late. So it's not like one of those June 1st, July 1st. It's, I got the impression it's like a September 1st or October 1st after the season is over. And I just asked Zach, can you do me a solid? Can you let me know what, what you want to do? So if I'm not invited back, I have time to go find something else. Because if you wait until the exact date of that option and don't pick it up, I got nothing because all the seats are going to be gone. And then that led to the option has been picked up. But was it just announced? Because technically, the letter of the law in this contract, as I understand it, would be it does not have to be firmly finalized by the team under the prior agreement until whatever that is, September 1st, August 31st, September 31st. I don't know the date. That was part one. That Maybe he's just getting concerned, and it was his camp that leaked this out because they want it known, hey, before you fill all the seats, this guy might be available. Second thought was, and maybe this is it, because Felix sort of alludes to that in this. He says, basically, it's going really well in IndyCar, and I want to stay, and Zach understands that. And I even said this to Felix, and I said, I know you can't comment, but here's one theory I have. Maybe Zach is going to do you a solid if he does not need you in IndyCar and you get offered another ride, maybe he'll let you out of his contract. And he, you know, I said, you don't need to comment because I know you can't, but that's the other theory that I have out of this. And then part three of that, what's his relationship like with Chip Ganassi after leaving? Could he go back there? His manager is Stefan Johansson, who manages Scott Dixon. So if anybody can mend those fences, if they need to be mended, I don't know. You know, I, I got the impression the team wasn't super happy that Felix left. They thought he was going to stay. But as I recall it, they couldn't guarantee 100% and make the firm offer because they were waiting on, maybe it was NTT data, to, to get them re-signed that particular year. And he had a firm offer for maybe even more money. And he said, I got to take this because you guys don't have the sponsor signed and can't 100% make me the offer. So maybe all is well there. And maybe there's been some conversation that if Pelot does get out, or maybe they're more likely to let Pelot out to go to Errol McLaren SP. And we talked to Zach Brown. Zach thinks he can find another Formula E driver. Maybe the whole plan of this really was we just want insurance in case we can't get Pelot and IndyCar. And if we do, then we're going to have a spot to send Felix in Formula E. So there are my three theories. So I do like the idea that he could go back to the 10. Now, if Chip was frustrated that, that uh, Felix left in the first place, I think that probably was smoothed over pretty quickly by one, Stefan Johansson being in the family, so to speak, as Dixon's uh, longtime manager and, you know, working closely with Chip over the years. And the other thing is, I really don't know anybody that dislikes Felix Rosenquist. He's a nice yep. guy. He's a nice guy. And Chip, Chip can be a little, you know, touchy at some point. Uh, 
prickly, uh, but, uh, you know, Chip ultimately, you know, would like a guy like Felix Rosenquist who doesn't cause waves, who just drives a race car. Yes, he probably took an offer that was too good to pass up. And and I bet in the days after uh, that contract was signed, I think Chip probably said, I'd have done the same thing if I was Felix. So I, I can't imagine he couldn't go back. I do like that as a possibility, uh, more so than a lot of the other options that I've dreamed up in my head. So I think that's that's possible. Um, it, but I, I would think that uh, that Felix might do well not to share that possibility with Zach Brown, uh, given that he's not exactly – uh, on great terms with Chip, or it seems that way anyway. They're not best of buddies, so maybe he might keep that one a little close to the vest. Well, maybe but, that helps Chip encourage Chip to release Polo if he's got an acceptable replacement for him. It's essentially yeah. like a trade. <laughs> yeah, it might it might work out that way, but uh, you know, it's a it's just it's just so strange. And this press release, you know, or this statement that was made. I mean, I don't know. It's well, just, that it's it, it, it it's smart. So because Felix is so nice that we all keep asking him and I, I asked him once and then I didn't ask him the rest of the weekend. And he went to the press room on Friday and first said, I'm not going to talk about this and then proceeded to talk about it a whole lot and even went down a path where he said, I essentially I'm paraphrasing uh, something along the lines of, I feel all of this going on might be impacting my team. And it's one of the reasons why we've had some things go wrong. Did you I know, read those I thought, quotes? I was, I was surprised by that. I was going to try to pull them up just to see if I can uh, get them directly. But yeah, I was surprised he said that. Um, so I don't agree with that. <laughs> I don't either. But I can see where he thinks that. And I asked some people that were in the team meeting what the team meeting was about. And it was more about, you know, last year was about performance. We needed to do the big things because we just weren't quick enough. Now we've ticked that off. Now we're failing on some of the small things like the brake dragging uh, apparently, or something like that the week before that cost him speed on the road course. So let's just refocus on everything. I highly doubt it's impacting crew members with the uncertainty of their driver. They like their driver. If anything, they're going to want to work harder to keep their driver. But it's not like the program is going away and they're going to lose their job next year. It would just be a different driver would be in that seat. I get how Felix is going down that path. He's just kind of, you know, sometimes – like I do on this show, you just start talking and you start coming up with theories and maybe you hadn't fully processed that. And along the way, the team said, you know what, we're going to help you out here. Let's craft some sort of a statement to make us all look better and stop talking about this so much as we go into the final races of the season. And I'll leave one last thought on this, on the whole thing with the Pelot versus Ganassi uh, situation. So I'm going to up my chances of him staying in the 10 from about 2%. You're telling me there's a chance and maybe it's more like 10%. And and I don't know this. What I don't know is where does NTT data fit in all of this? What if they tell Chip Ganassi, we like Alex Pillow, and if it works out and you win this suit, we want him to stay. Sometimes sponsors become attached to drivers and he's a pretty likable young fellow who won a championship as well. And I even thought that before Chip goes up and fist bumps, you know, Alex and says, nice job after he finishes on the podium. I still think there's a change coming. 
but I'm giving it just a teeny bit more chance that it might make sense from a business standpoint for it to continue down that path. At the end of the day, Chip Ganassi's job is to hire the best driver available for that car. Who's the best available driver for that car if he's available? Well, it, it's Alex yes. Below. You would yes, I would agree with that, but not if he's not communicating with his team members and you know there's Well, they there's decided a, that. Well, no 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 no. I mean, if you know, there can be you can be a problem in the organization and not be your yeah. fault. I mean, Which just goes back to why we still think he's likely to go. But I'm there may be things that we don't know about, so I'm still, you know, it's still I think 90% chance that he's gone, but you just never know. I think with each passing week, I feel better about the chances of him staying, but I'm not up anywhere north of much more than 10 or 20 percent. I mean, I think it's it's still very low percentage. Yep. All right. We're behind. Um, we've got plenty of other things we want to get to, including how the Big Ten TV rights might impact IndyCar. Huh? We'll get into that before we're done on Trackside. Hi, this is Felix Rosenquist, and you're listening to Trackside. I love it that Josh has got the perfect read for uh, the moment. Hey, the racing action at the Tom Wood Group Indianapolis Speedrome, powered by Lincoln Tech, stays hot as they get closer and closer to the World Figure 8 Championship three-hour endurance race in September. And this Saturday, it's a night of stock car racing on the historic Fifth Mile Oval, capped by the always exciting, wild and unpredictable late model figure eight. The Speedrome features family-friendly action, great food, free parking, and outrageous fun. Adult tickets, only $10. more information, speedrome.com. And Kevin, with the news of the day. Well, let's do some road racing veterans doing some stock car racing. Marco Andretti is going to be in NASCAR in an Xfinity race coming up on the, at the Roval in Charlotte in October for Scott Borchetta's big machine team, the number 48 in the Xfinity series. Kimmy is coming back to NASCAR. He'll be at Watkins Glen in Justin Mark's car in their Project 91 for European drivers and such uh, in the Cup series. And that's the one I'm kind of keeping an eye on, that maybe that would make sense for Elio Castroneves for a one-off at the Daytona 500 next year. Elio said still nothing done on that front, but uh, conversations are continuing. And Mike Rockefeller, a two-time Lamar winner, who's won in the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship, is going to drive the 77 Spire Cup car at Watkins Glen and Charlotte later this year. There's our news of the day. We have plenty of more news to get to, including your Twitter questions and comments coming up at Kurt Cabot, at Kevin Lee 23 on Trackside. This is Alex Palou, and you're listening to Trackside. Hour number two. Your input is welcome at Kevin Lee 23 at Kurt Cabin. Josh Mullenix is in our studios. Also, thanks to Sam Rumsa from IndyCar Radio. We'll put the open together tonight. Kevin Lee, Kurt Cabin. Weekend off coming up for IndyCar before a Saturday night race. 20th is a Saturday, correct? Saturday night correct. race at uh, Worldwide Technology Raceway just outside St. Louis. Uh, and just three races to go in the championship and just like that scott dixon is only six points back before the weekend he was 38 a couple weeks before that i think i have this in my notes if you don't already know it uh he was 67 back before he won at toronto 
Well, the other thing is uh, this next race is going to be at the Joseph Newgarden Speedway, otherwise known as Worldwide <laughs> Technology. He's won the last two and three of the last six, and he is only 22 points out of the points lead, which means if he wins this race again, which uh, would be a good bet, that uh, he'd probably be the points leader coming out because the difference between first and second turns out to be about 13 usually 12 to 13 to 14 points and uh, 14 if he dominates the weekend as he's capable of and that very well could uh, upheave the points championship again so let's just kind of look at who was good last year you can you can kind of go back a couple of years but it doesn't really do a lot of good to go back more than that pre-arrow screen it's a slightly different car so last year at gateway uh, you're talking about New Garden, Pato Award, Will Power, Scott McLaughlin, Sebastian Bourdais finished fifth. I had forgotten that, that Bourdais did uh, last year. But what what commonality do we see there? <laughs> the three Penske <laughs> hey, drivers Penske, all yeah. finishing in the top four of that race. Uh-oh. And all three are still championship contenders. Sato finished sixth. Hunter Ray Pagano, who was also with Team Penske, Erickson, and Harvey, uh, the top 10 last year. Then let's look at Portland. Ganassi, one and three. Pelot won. Dixon finished third. Rossi finished second with Andretti. They do not have a championship contender. Rossi is still mathematically alive, but they don't have a championship contender. Jack Harvey finished fourth. That was basically an Andretti car. Uh, as well, Newgarden finished fifth. So he was the best Penske in that particular one and it started 18th. Um, so I'll have to go back and review that one. Power started 14th, finished 13th. McLaughlin started 15th, finished 9th. So it looks like, at least from last year, the Penske cars were not fantastic. Now, maybe there was a red or something random in qualifying that we'll learn once we get a little closer. And a Laguna Seca. I do remember the Andretti cars being really good. Rossi started up front, tangled with Herta early in the race. In fact, yeah, he and Herta started on the front row. Herta won the race. Pelot finished second. Grosjean third. Rahal fourth. Pato fifth. Erickson sixth. Newgarden started 17th, finished seventh. Power started third, but finished 26th. I'd have to look back at my notes specifically to see what happened to Will in in that race. So do we glean anything as to who the favorites are based on most recent activity at the upcoming tracks? Well, you would start with the fact that uh, Team Penske needs to make hay next weekend at St. Louis. That would be the first uh, thing I would draw from it. The second thing I get from that discussion you just presented is that I didn't hear Marcus Erickson's name in any of those. So that would be a concern, even though he's a Ganassi driver. And yes, Polo won Portland with Dixon, you know, third, and, and they qualified on the front row. That doesn't mean that Marcus feels as comfortable there as the other two. But I didn't hear Marcus's name. I also uh, didn't hear, uh, you know, a lot of a couple of the others, Pato Award being one, although he's further down in the championship now in, in like seventh. But, um, you know, Joseph needs to make hay this week. Will Power would be doing well. Power has a win at Portland. Uh, none of the drivers in the championship mix have a win at Laguna Seca. 
because Colton Herta has won both of them uh, since since IndyCar's mm. race there, and you know none of the other guys uh, had raced there much at all, if if at all. So it's you know it really still is Penske versus Ganassi clearly, uh, and I think you would say that Portland would be a Ganassi track based on last year, and Penske will be a uh, St. Louis track, a Gateway track, Worldwide Technology Raceway. Let's get the name right. So Power had a mechanical early on at Laguna Seca last year, so he was fast. Uh, Erickson's been okay at these final three tracks. Not in the top five, but not far off. I remember he was pretty strong at Worldwide Technology Raceway. Started sixth, finished ninth. Finished seventh at Portland. Finished sixth at uh, WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca. So he's kind of in the mix, but he's in that position where you know, at some point he's going to likely need a win here uh, moving down the stretch. So so the championship right now looks like Dixon trailing power by six. Erickson right there, 12 back. Newgarden, 22 back. That's all close enough. You know, that that's a half of a race right there in the top three. And I would say Pelot, 33 back, is still very much. Now, it's a little tougher to, to beat four people and make up that difference. But they're there, and then it's a long shot for McLaughlin and Pottle Award, 58 and 59 back. So we'll just make this prediction. I don't think this is too far out to say. The the last real championship contenders when we get to Laguna Seca will have won one of these two races because, you know, somebody in that championship mix is going to win Gateway and maybe not – and and or Portland, meaning I think that the guy who's in the driver's seat at Laguna Seca will have won one of these two races because there's a lot of extra bonus points that come with winning a race, and that might just be the difference. I don't know if anyone still has test days left over. I think there might be some testing still available. Is anyone going to make the trip out to Laguna Seca? Probably. Somebody's probably saved something. Probably I haven't seen the full testing for the for the rest of the month, but I can tell you that that uh, the rookies and Dalton Kellett will be testing this week at uh, at Gateway, and so they will. I think that's Thursday and Indy Lights on Friday, but there are no veterans other than Dalton Kellett at this test, and that does not help any of the championship contenders. So where was it last year? Was it when New Garden won at Gateway? Maybe. There was one where I remember him giving McLaughlin credit because he used one of his rookie test days to help him last year. So that's an advantage. If you've got a rookie you think highly enough, maybe even if you don't think that highly, there might still be something that the engineers learn. But the Ganassis... Uh, don't have any rookies. Jimmy is not a rookie anymore, so that would have been an option for them last year. The Penske's don't have any. Now, the Andretti's do, but they're not in the championship mix. So, you know, they could use Devlin for a testing situation. Uh, McLaren wouldn't have anything there with Pato or Rosenquist. You know, Pato and McLaughlin, their chances, they need to win the next race to have – as I said last week, I don't see either one of them, anybody that far back – um, this was more speaking of McLaughlin because Pato wasn't that far back until what happened on Sunday, but nobody that far back is realistically going to do it. But what I can see is them being mathematically alive in, in the final race to where, you know, if you're 
35 back, I guess technically you could be what? Well, now it's five points. Five points is what you score if there are 26 drivers in the field. So you are talking a 49-point difference potentially, right? You could score 54 in a weekend. That's right. That's right. So if you're within 49 and have tiebreaker with more wins or, say, 48 going into the last race, you are going to be mathematically alive. But you better be second. You probably better be second in the championship because, you know, if you're third or fourth, you're not going to be able to climb over everyone. That's why, you know, 35, the first number I threw out was probably about right. 35, you got a bit of a chance because then all you're looking at is it, you know, two or three crashing together. You win the race and you're right there. So it it is going to go down amazingly to the final race uh, yet again. It certainly appears unless, you know, one of these top two or three uh, start rolling off. And I just don't see that happening. I don't see anyone winning the next two races because it's been too tight. Everybody's been too good, too balanced for anyone to run away with this. So I'm going to say over, under, having a a legitimate chance in the last race. Maybe go beyond that. Just say mathematical. I'm going to say four. Four are going to have a mathematical chance at Laguna Seca. I don't think I could, uh, even if I wanted to, or was allowed to, to bet on who might win this championship. But I'd take Linus Lundquist to win the Indy Lights title. Would you like to have the field? He's 84 <laughs> points up with four to go. No, I think he's more than that. Yeah, he might be. Unless it, <laughs> I, I think he's like 95 or something like that. You want the field? Yeah, that. Huh? No, no, it's done. <laughs> Sorry. I probably won't say that to open the show next next week, but it's done. One, because he's he's better than everybody else. He and that team are better than everyone else. This isn't a fluke, and it's what was expected coming into the year. I thought it might be a little bit closer, but it's been very clear that Linus, he's the guy this year, and he's likely going to have some options. And I chatted with him for a little while, and it's just all over the map. He doesn't even know where to begin because a lot of it depends on other things. Uh, and kind of starts with 10 car. What if David Malukas does go to Ganassi? And that's still kind of out there. I I know, I I think he's set to return, but if an offer is made for a buyout, and and I don't know, because Chip Ganassi's not going to speak about this, if they would make an offer. But if Dale Coyne has offered a significant amount of money for that contract, I got to think if I'm Dale Coyne, I'm taking that. Maybe he wouldn't, but if I'm Dale, I feel pretty good about getting compensation for the first time for one of the guys that I've trained. He helped train Alex Pillow, wins a championship the next year. How many different guys have left Dale Coyne Racing and moved on to somewhere else, and Dale gets nothing out of it? Good for him that he's got the option done, if it is what we believe it is, and it's locked in that it would require some compensation for him to get out, either from... Uh, David's dad or from the new team or a combination there. I have no idea if Ganassi wants David Malukas. I just know that's kind of the common thought when you go around and ask people, not other media types, people that make these decisions or people whose opinions our listeners would trust. And David Malukas' name is mentioned a lot. Callum Eilat's name 
was mentioned a lot. And now several people have mentioned to me, hey, what about Felix Rosenquist? What about, could he get back there? That one makes a lot of sense in the 10. But going back to Lundquist, he can't get very deep in anything because he doesn't know who has a seat. If Malukas were to leave, that'd make an awful lot of sense for him to just slot in there in that situation. Um, because I, I do think HMD would stay. I, I believe David when he says my dad wants to be uh, at least a co-entrant and maybe more eventually. So I think they just simply separate. The kid goes his own way. In some ways that might be better for him. And the dad continues on with a business relationship and they hire the guy that has won an Indy Lights championship with him. That would make some sense. And then what's going to happen at Foyt? You know, they've got at least one opening. Uh, I'd keep an eye on Benjamin Peterson. You know, I think we've seen him around there for a while. I think he probably has the budget. I don't know if it's a done deal or not, but that's what I suspect will happen. Benjamin Peterson is going to be in the 14 car next year. And this might be a decent option for Foyt. Hopefully they sign him to a two-year deal. Uh, And Kirkwood was never going to sign two because he knew that he was likely to have the option in Andretti, and maybe already that was done. That's one of the lingering questions. We still don't know. You know, when did he agree to terms with Andretti? Was that at the end of 2021 or was it early on? Uh, My guess it was was last year because this was – maybe it had to wait for Rossi. So I guess it starts with when did Rossi tell them he wasn't coming back. I don't know when that date was. But I think they pretty much knew by last November or December that he wasn't going to be returning to to Andretti. I think you're right. I think Kirkwood's known for much longer than we'd realized, but they didn't have the maybe some of the particulars lined up until Rossi informed them of his decision to to go looking elsewhere. So I, then then it became easy to put things together. But you know, I just wonder. You know how would how would Andretti grade what what Kirkwood has done this year? I mean, he's had he's had a fair amount of incidents, some his fault, some not. Uh, he's had some bad luck, some his fault, some not. And and I just you know he hasn't had the smooth season that I think we expected uh, him to have. I know it's it's not one of the top tier cars, but. But um, it'd just be interesting to know how, how they thought uh, he's performed at Foyt. There's a little bit of a mixed opinion on that, again, in the paddock. Generally, the consensus seems to be they would have no concern. And, I'm in, and of this, of the people that I've chatted with about, I haven't asked the Andretti people, so this isn't anyone inside their camp speaking, but the general opinion has been, no, he's going to be fine. He's fast. He's pressing. Uh, he's, you know, luckily for Andretti, he's getting this all out of his system before he moves up to their program. But there have been a couple of people that have said, boy, I, be, I bet Andretti's looking, you know, how do we get out of this? Well, we should want David Malukas or see if somehow Christian Lungard is available, which I don't think he is. He's staying with, with Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan next year. Um but it is of interest. And think about this from Foyt's standpoint. They're paying an awful lot of crash damage right now to develop a driver who's leaving them in three races. That cannot be comfortable. That, yes, they can. he can help them on the engineering front, and I think he has. 
I think he's led them in a direction. I believe Kyle Kirkwood leaves Foyt Racing and the 14 car a little bit better than when he arrived. And that seems odd, knowing how good Sebastian Bourdais is. But I would say the same is true with Sebastian Bourdais. That, that's how much they had to go, is that Bourdais helped them get to a spot last year. Kirkwood continued that. And in some ways, maybe Kirkwood advances it because Bourdais likes a certain kind of car that not everybody likes. And that was difficult for them to come up with. Whereas I think Kirkwood is, you know, a little more open to trying some different things. And they've, I think, found some things down that path. So I think they're better, but still, that's got to be hard. And you even wonder, they do they think, you know, they're on the brink of both of their cars missing the leader circle. I think they're last Boy. and next to last in points. Boy, I they're not at that. They're not going to have a leader circle program. And this theory has been thrown out there, not by a Foyt person, but do you put, it was more before the Iowa race, thinking this is what's coming up. You know, J.R. Hildebrand is going to be good at Iowa. You suspect he'd be good at Gateway. You suspect that Kyle Kirkwood, actually, I think Kyle did pretty decently at Iowa, uh, at least in the first race. And then I think he crashed in the second one. But do you put J.R. in that car like Andretti did a couple of years ago with Hinchcliffe for Zach Veach, just trying to get the million dollars for the leader circle. Because frankly, your chances might have been better with JR than they were with Kyle, coupling with the fact that he's leaving you at the end of the year. Now, I don't know if that was ever thought about, but it was something that people threw out there and said, I wonder, I wonder what's being thought of in the team. Obviously it didn't happen. I doubt it happens because I think there's a good relationship between the team and the driver. Um, but she's not happy. That's not good. I was trying to see how far off he was, if, if that might make a difference. And he's 15 points behind 23rd in the driver's standings. I don't have the entrance standings in front of me, but 15 points in the driver's standings, which are usually mirror pretty close. Uh, I don't know of any exceptions to the rule down in the, that part of the of the lineup, but um, the ones that let's see, I don't think the, uh, the Jack Harvey car would have more points because of wherever. And actually the Jack Harvey car would be higher because yes. Santino finished in the top 10 at Texas, the best finish of that car so where did Santino finish that race? Jack had his best finish of the season this weekend in 10th, which still is at least the same as what Santino did in his one race for the team, because I'm pretty sure he finished in the top 10 at Texas, and I will find that. Uh, he finished ninth. So in his one race, Santino still has the best result. Ugh. Oh, and by the way, just cleaning something up, I mentioned that last week it was so rough for, for Jack. He didn't even offer a comment in the press release. He did. So my bad on that, he did. It was just so short when I was scanning through things. I didn't notice it, but it was a, like a one-line quote, quote that said, it was not a good race for us on the Nashville. So I was glad to see it went better in Nashville for him. And on that same front, this is how bad it was going for Scott Dixon. I kind of led into this into the uh, Victory Lane interview. I wasn't covering Scott this weekend, so I didn't even try to talk to him all weekend. 
but I was told that he wouldn't talk after qualifying and it was very short conversations uh, before that he was generally pretty grumpy uh, with how things had been going, which has kind of been a theme. I think he's been a little bit disappointed about some decisions made at times, some mistakes made at times, and then everything goes wrong in the race. That's not the team's fault in most cases. Uh, I mean, he ends up in victory lane. So, um, but, but that's another guy. Dixon had no post-qualifying quote. There were quotes from the other three drivers and whoever in PR was in charge of that was probably like, yeah, I ain't going over there. He's won six championships. We'll let him be. And we'll just send out the release uh, as it is. So we'll see what other things we need to get to coming up in just a moment. I know I have several other nuggets I want to uh, spend some time on, and we'll check into the Twitter inbox. Kevin Lee 23 at Kirk Cavan, trackside 93.5-1075-The Fan. Hi, this is Will Power, and you're listening to Trackside. At Kevin Lee 23 at Kurt Cavan. On social media, uh, let's see here. Let's go back and go through a few things. Indianapolis Motor Speedway Radio Network fan account says paging Kurt and Kevin to this thread. Let's hit it. And says, I invite IndyCar to enforce rules 9.3.7 and 9.3.8 anytime now. And before that, from... At Cocky Andretti, interesting reading the post-race comments, tweets with Joseph after this similar incident two weeks ago. He should probably be like other drivers and create a parody account if he wants to continue this type of behavior. Do the drivers, do any drivers have a parody account? I know of people in the industry that have parody accounts. Well, I'm sure they do. I'm sure somebody has one, but... uh... Yeah, maybe. It's not operating under at Kurt Cavan, <laughs> I can tell you that. <laughs> so, uh, okay, so this is going back to the one before. So Cocky Andretti is annoyed that it, he says, it's interesting that people have campaigns against bowling and then support something like this. And it was the tweet with Joseph clapping back at Santino, spelling his name wrong, saying, at Penske, we care about the tails. It's Joseph. I'm not sure that that falls into the line of bullying. I believe Santino's going to be okay. And then what he's referring to, I guess, here, I don't know what 9.3.7 and 9.3.8 maybe has to do with comportment and representing the series, but that likely goes to, uh, so we had the cauldron of hate overflowing with what? Sato versus Devlin Francesco. I don't know how Kyle Kirkwood and Malukas felt about their contact. Grosjean against Newgarden. Erickson versus Grosjean. Joseph Newgarden versus the guy on Twitter. Colton had a nice clap back, too, as well. Uh, so, yeah, there you go. Um, no, I don't think Joseph's in any danger of being fined by responding to someone on Twitter. It might argue that's not a great idea. I personally find it's best to not get involved in that because that just draws attention to it. But again, going back to what we said before, you've been sweating in the car for three days. Uh, You were in just a lot of things going on. You just tempers are a little bit short and you pick up the phone and you look at your messages and you'll want to respond. It's generally best not to, but Joseph responded to a couple of them. 
Yeah, by the way, 9.3.8 has to do with conduct uh, detrimental there you go. to the sport. You know, being respectful to each other, threatening an official, those kind of things, calling into question the integrity of the sport, you know, just comments like that. But uh, I, don't, I don't see anything that's crossed the line here. Generally speaking, everyone's always asking for the drivers to show more personality. I think they're generally talking about yeah, towards each other, not necessarily clapping back uh, at fans. But my guess is whoever got the response on Twitter loved it. Isn't that what, when you rip on somebody, isn't that generally what you're looking for? Sure, sure. Not, not everyone, but generally uh, the case. Now, there would be circumstances where it's, probably not the nicest thing to do if you pick on somebody but when they've come at you fair game if they want to come back so all is fine in my mind in the joseph newgarden world it now team penske might say joseph we'd prefer you not do this the next time um because that's not generally how things are done but we want honesty right and we don't always get it because it's not good for business it's not good for their business but if someone's willing to do it then fantastic. And all well, those tweets are going to be in the cauldron of hate, and we're going to stir them up at, in St. Louis. You know, Robin just would not have wanted a Twitter fight. He would have wanted Correct. a real fight, not a this Twitter fight. This is as fight. close Come as we on. can get. This is as close as we can get anymore, though, yeah. Uh, 500 coverage says, I found this crazy. It's a tweet from Tony Donahue. 4.2, the average finish for Scott Dixon in the final three races of his six championship seasons. Only one time in those 18 races did he finish outside the top 10. That's how you win championships. Okay. It is. Uh, other tweets from Kurt St. Angelo. Question and comment. IndyCars use rearview mirrors. I can see why they don't use turn signals, but why don't open-wheel cars use brake lights? This makes no sense, just like IndyCars' unresolved problem of shorting drivers of quality qualification time. You know, I've asked that question before, too. Why there are not yeah, brake signals. So maybe, maybe we can get uh, the connection a little better. How's that? What's that? Yeah, your connection got a little little garbled there just a little bit. So you Josh, talk in my ear. If it's no good, we'll just yeah, we missed... I'll, I'll sign off and come back on. He says we both sound great, okay. so it's right, on your end, Kurt. <laughs> okay. All right, so I'll I'll talk amongst my so uh, brake lights. So one theory I would have is you know, what determines on a road course making a successful pass is out breaking the guy in front of you. And I don't imagine cars in front want the guy behind to know when they're braking. So that might be part of it. I don't know that that makes a difference. You still, you see him slowing down. So I'm, I'm going to ask this question again. Why can't we have brake lights? I know it's been told to me before. I'd really love to have some sort of hazard light. I, this is when it came up when someone runs out of fuel in the Indy 500, like, was it Mike Conway they did? Or no, it was somebody in front of Mike Conway. Was it Ryan Hunter Ray? I think it's Kurt's connection that, that we've lost there. Um, so someone like that, when you can't see uh, the person in front slowing down dramatically, you know, like a hazard light or something like that. But it is a fair question. And the qualification time that's being debated about and different opinions. One is, hey, Everybody's got the same amount of time. Sometimes there's good luck. Sometimes there's bad luck. It, it adds some drama. 
to these race weekends and to that qualification session. And yes, we don't have the TV window problem anymore. It's all on Peacock, but at some point things got to end. And if they guarantee time, then they're going to go back to all sitting at the beginning of these qualifying segments to get that last lap. And then somebody else is going to crash and it just won't ever end. Uh, It's not great. But I get it why it's still random. And and the response has been, well, they can just put the alternates on to start the session. The problem with that is if there's not a red flag and you start on alternates and someone else does not, then you're probably not going to advance because the track is always going to get better. Um, But that is a proper answer. It's just taking a chance. And you can do what Dalton Keller did. Started on the alternates. Red flag. He's not particularly quick in that session, but he advances on. So I feel for everyone getting highly disadvantaged, and it is not the fastest six in these sessions because of that. But I think Will Power said it best a few weeks ago. You just need to be in the six on every single lap. You'd better get everything out of your banker lap in case it goes red then, and then your out lap needs to be good as well. Maybe the easiest way is if you did do an extra round and had a little bit more clear space because it has been difficult sometimes to find uh, track space. Mike Stoop says, watching on TV, attendance looked down from last year. So was it due to weather, perhaps discouragement over last year's crash fest? Yeah, okay. I think we talked about that a little bit earlier on. Um, And that's all I have in the middle of many other tweets, so it would take too long to go through those. So one thing I wanted to mention also, and this has nothing to do with motorsport, but maybe it has some impact. We've said before how streaming is the next generation of cable. And, you know, we all understand. We don't know what the numbers are on the races on Peacock. I honestly do not know what the numbers are on Peacock. They're not released. Someone knows, though. And IndyCar and NBC are getting a sense of, you know, what the hardcore fan base is. That, that they know what that number is that's watching the Toronto race specifically or sessions that are only on streaming. So ESPN is apparently not going to have Big Ten football or basketball starting next year. The contract has one more year on it. Uh, Sports Business Journal reported last night it looked like ESPN was out, and I suspect that was leaked to get ESPN to see if they wanted to add a little bit more money. This is the next big sports rights deal out there. That's why it's a big deal. Today ESPN, no one's refuting this, said, nope, we told uh, the Big Ten we're not bidding. The number was something north of $350 million a year to have a package of a few football games and a lot of basketball games. It's not official yet, but SBJ reports that it's going to be Fox. We knew that. And the rest of the package split between CBS and NBC. So that gets NBC back into some different sports, which is always good to to help that cause. And the report says that some games will be on Peacock. And my guess is we're talking about basketball. I'd be surprised if any football games are on Peacock, but maybe. I doubt it because I think Big Ten Network takes the games that aren't as high profile. So that's good because it adds more people finding a reason to pay $5 a month and being able to navigate Peacock. And I also think as uh, it's used more and more, um, the dexterity of the app and other things will come along. You know, I, I find some of the TV apps... Super handy, like YouTube TV is very user 
friendly. And I've seen improvements in Peacock since it debuted a couple of years ago. And I think the more and more it becomes a, quote, mainstream, unquote, type of platform, then I, I think that will be to the better. So I haven't seen that official yet, but that I think would be good. And hopefully we get news on that in the coming days. All right, we'll see what we missed. We'll see if we have Kurt with us and more when we come back on Trackside. Hi, this is Joseph Newgarden, and you're listening to Trackside. Okay, what have we missed? We may have time to get back into the box score to talk about some others in a second. Uh, we've got some more schedule news. So the IMSA WeatherTech schedule and all the IMSA schedules came out last Friday night in the State of the Series address at Road America. I think I mentioned last week on the show we knew from SRO when St. Pete was going to be, uh, that it was going to be the first weekend in March. We learned that the Detroit Kurt IndyCar weekend is not going to include the WeatherTech series. I thought I had heard it was, but maybe I just heard it's going to include IMSA, which it does, but only the top class of the Michelin Pilot Challenge. And that's apparently going to be a one-year thing, and they will hope to add it if they can in uh, 2024. But the big problem is that many of the IMSA WeatherTech teams and drivers, especially drivers, would be competing in Le Mans, which I think is the next weekend, and they basically need to be there by Sunday morning. And so they can't race on Saturday and get there by Sunday morning. And this is a special year. What, next year is the 100th uh, anniversary of the first Le Mans, so things even get started maybe a day earlier. So that's one of the reasons for that. I saw another racing series put out a schedule that says they're racing in Nashville, Next year, August 4th through 6th. So that tells me that's when the IndyCar weekend is going to be. And as I had been hearing, WeatherTech was not a part of the Chicago NASCAR race, and they still haven't decided which IMSA series is going to be with them. I suppose it could still have WeatherTech added, but they announced the WeatherTech series like this is pretty firm. It's still 11 events. What did they do? They Sebring... We don't, we don't think it's going to be an impact with IndyCar, but we don't know. We have to see what's going to happen on that part of the schedule. But there weren't too many major changes other than the confirmation that Mid-Ohio is going away and Indianapolis is coming in. As for an IndyCar schedule, I've not asked anyone, but my guess is we're probably looking you know, somewhere in a month or so. Um, maybe it's ready by the end of the season. I don't think there are many questions other than Texas Motor Speedway. That's the one that I, I'm not certain about. I think it's going to happen, but that's the one that probably isn't signed at this point. I would guess that discussions didn't really get started until they see how Iowa went. And, you know, is this an option? Do we want to co-promote it? Do we want to take it over? What's the situation there? I think I think I expect everything else to return for next year. I don't know that they're all signed, but I expect everything else to be back next year for IndyCar. Yeah, I feel like this this looks like a very similar schedule to what we have in 2022. We didn't say the Indy 500 ought to be May 28th. I think we <laughs> know think, that day, and, and I'm sure you that. can find. I think you can find when the Long Beach race is going to be. They normally have that put out, so I think you can do a Google search and see when next year's Long Beach. In fact, I know that's the case because I already tried to get a hotel. Uh, to have a second hotel room, and they're already like $1,000. So everyone knows when that date is is going to be, and they're all non-refundable. Um, yeah. Back to the box score. You were asking me this. You know, one of the guys that was 
on his way to another really strong performance. He was doing okay, slipped back, um, but then timing of a pit stop moved him back up to third was Christian Lungard, who lost five spots in the final lap and a quarter. That's unfortunate. He really had a podium day going, and I thought there was a chance he was going to jump Dixon on the the last restart or two. He had two shots at him, I think, and uh, I thought he had a chance to win his first race and then, you know, gets passed by McLaughlin for third and then on that restart uh, loses two or three positions and, and then lost a couple more on the on the next lap, the final lap, the lap and a half to the to the shootout. But um, it's unfortunate. He drove better than eighth place in this one. He was third going into that last restart after the red, lost lost a spot into nine. And essentially the way that seems to happen is if you if you try to stay in it and contest the spot, you're going in the wall. If the guy on the inside doesn't give you a lot of room, so you kind of have to back out, and he essentially had lost three spots by the exit of nine, and then he lost two more spots in the final few corners of the next lap with some hard chargers going by him. Felix Rosenquist got by him at the end. I had mentioned on the broadcast that he was the only one that came in on the next to the last stop with you know, like five laps to go and took sticker alternates, so he only had to run like two laps on, on those tires, and then Joseph Newgarden who we see was quite motivated, also got by him at the end there. But still a really impressive run for him. Uh, Alex Pelot might have been in position to win, but he had not taken his last stop when the caution came out on lap 52 for uh, the third Graham Rahal crash of the weekend. How about that, of the day? That was he strong. He crashed, tried to limp it back to pit lane, couldn't steer it, ran into the wall, then comes in, does an interview, and when they said he crashed again, I thought they got it wrong. It's another blue and white car because he just walked by me on pit lane five minutes ago. And no, it was him. Crashed a, a wounded car. Uh, that's the only thing last is that that's why you want to be the first to pit. The window was open. Get in there like Dixon did, and that's how he won the race. We're out of time. We'll try again next week. We'll see you then, Kurt. See you then. Thanks to Josh Molnix in our studio podcast up in a few minutes, iTunes, Spotify, all the usual outlets, including at 1075thefan.com. For Josh and Kurt, I'm Kevin. This is Trackside on 93.5 and 1075 The Fan.